Welcome again to the WhitmerCast, a podcast by the John Whitmer Historical Association. We bring you essays, interviews, panel discussions, and broadcasts related to Mormon history and restoration studies. Today we have a great episode lined up. Jason Smith will be talking with Bill Russell, one of the founders of the John Whitmer Historical Association, about his career studying the restoration movement, particularly about his research into RLDS fundamentalist groups. If you'd like to join JWHA or visit our entire backlog of episodes in JWHA journals, go to www.jwha.info. With that out of the way, let's get started. Okay, Bill, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Good uh, to be here. I can't imagine anyone in uh, John Whitmer uh, not knowing who you are. But uh, for those that don't, I have a few things I want to mention. You taught at Graceland University for a number of years. 41 years, full-time. Mm-hmm. 41 years. And then 10 years part-time after that. Mm-hmm. You were one of the founding members of the John Whitmer Historical Association. That's right. 14 of us. 10, 10 are dead. And one of the first Community of Christ, then RLDS uh, historians, that became involved with the Mormon History Association. Yes, I was one of the very, very first. I think only Bob Flanders and maybe Dick Howard preceded Paul Edwards and I when we went out in 71 to Provo to the annual meeting of the Mormon History Association meeting. And it was a year, a year later that we started the John Whitmer. So in a way, Mormon history preceded John Whitmer by one year in, in, in our experience. And, and you've served as a president of both of those organizations. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, you're the author of numerous articles and several books, including one of my favorites, Bill, um, Treasure in Earthen Vessels. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I, I really, uh, really appreciate that book. 1966. It went through four printings, and it probably is one of the most frequently used books for Sunday school study for adults in the church because of all the four printings that went through. And uh, you were one of the first uh, members of the church to pursue a seminary degree. Yes, I was the third graduate at St. Paul's School of Theology. I came in second in my class. Yeah, yeah, I thought I was probably going to be first, but there's this one Methodist guy beat me. I didn't realize it. There was a guy ahead of me. (laughs) Dick Lancaster was the first graduate, and he was valedictorian. And and he later became president of Simpson College, the Methodist College, and so his the the president at uh, at at uh, St. Paul Seminary, I'm sure, was responsible for Dick becoming the president of Simpson College. Mm-hmm. And you but, you have a law degree. Yes, from University of Iowa. Later, later. Mm-hmm. And probably you're you're maybe most well known for your civil rights activism and advocacy. That's, that's true. I, 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 uh, I made uh, the first presidency really nervous about my civil rights editorials in the Saints Herald in the, in the mid-60s. Uh, Selma and uh, Birmingham and, and those, I wrote about six editorials on race. And uh, they would talk to the uh, managing editor, who by that time was Paul Wellington, and tell, tell Russell to, to kind of slow down, you know. And he'd come back and he would, he would laugh and he'd tell me, well, uh, they, want, they want you to slow down. But uh, Paul would tell me not to, not, to, not, to, not to worry about it. I would, I would continue and Paul, 
Paul Wellington, as far as I can tell, never so much as edited a single a single sentence in any of my editorials, uh, especially in these controversial ones. Well, none of them. And uh, he, he he was he supported me greatly. One day he came back from a meeting with the first presidency, and he says, "President W. Wallace Smith thinks Martin Luther King's a communist." And I said, "He does." Yeah, and he thinks you're a communist too. I said, oh, well, great. I'm in good company. <laughs> if I'm with Martin Luther King, <laughs> all right. Uh, w. Wallace Smith was really uh, incompetent to be president of, of the church. Uh, this idea of lineal succession through the family was ridiculous, and they should have ended that after. I think I think Joseph Smith III was a good president. That, that was probably who we needed. Uh, but after that, you know, Fred M, Supreme Directional Control, terrible. And we do, and then, anyway, but, but Wally B, well, I mean, I'm sorry, W. Wallace Smith, the, the father, uh, was really not prepared to be president of the church. He did not have m much experience, he didn't have much knowledge, and his two counselors carried him all the way through. Besides, you mentioned, you know, Selma and Birmingham, uh... You've continued this advocacy and activism through the years, uh, and to counter sexism and, and uh, yeah. homophobia and yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I became Lois and I became very active in Gala, the Gala organization, and uh, <clears throat> I participated in uh, well, I guess I guess you'd call them uh, <clears throat> debates and so forth uh, at, at Graceland on women's rights, and I participated in that. And I wrote a, wrote a few things, mainly in the local paper. Uh, but then, yeah, Gala became a really big activity for Lois and I. And, uh, I, and I wrote my book, Homosexual Saints, The Community Christ Experience. And that was, that was uh, one, one, one woman was so anxious to see the church make the changes that needed to be made that she bought about at least 500. Would you guess, Lois, as far as the number, at least four or five hundred books that she distributed to all the all the uh, all the people from Michigan that were going to be coming to World Conference, as well as a lot of other people, used them in Sunday school classes and so forth. And so uh, that book and and particularly this woman's help, uh, well, other people that really really saw to it that the book got wide distribution. In fact, Steve Vesey, the president of the church, bought about 30 copies and gave them to the key leaders of the church. So the book got well distributed <laughs> at, a, at, a, at, a, at a very good time because it led to finally the final national conference in, in 2013, which allowed the uh, uh, priesthood and marriage for, for gay and lesbian people in the church. So yeah, I've been active, in, and in capital punishment, my first article in uh, in the Herald that was you know a controversial social issue was on capital punishment, and that all came out of my senior senior class in high school. Miss Rose was the best teacher at Flint Northern High School, and my two older brothers, and so it said you got to take Miss Rhodes for English for senior English, and so I wrote an, uh, a. Uh, term paper on capital punishment and my position was simple kill them <laughs> they deserve it 
and it's cheaper. It's not, it's not cheaper. But anyway, Miss Rhodes wrote so many comments comments on my paper that I read it and I read it and I realized I wrote a stupid essay. And I got to studying the issue and then so when I went to Harold House right after right after my four years at Graceland, uh, the first serious editorial I wrote was on capital punishment and I had ten reasons against the, the death penalty. And then in the year 2000, I, I, I was the lead sponsor of a of a uh, world conference resolution on on capital punishment, which passed by a two thirds majority vote. Which I was shocked. I mean, I hadn't I hadn't brought it to the conference until that time because all those years before that, that United States seemed to be public opinion seemed to be so strong for the death penalty. I thought there's no chance it will win. And when we, when I brought it in, I thought, well, maybe we can get a majority. We got a two-thirds majority, and it's now it's now the doctrine of our church is we don't we don't believe in capital punishment. So yeah, I have quite a few variety of issues, social issues. I was I was involved in yeah. Well, besides these things that, that we've already mentioned, is there anything else that you want to say about yourself to? It's okay to brag or, or maybe confess. I don't. You know, it's a safe space, Bill. Well, maybe a little bit of both. Uh, well, I think probably. Uh, uh, well, the biggest reason really was education, and, and I think, as I see it, there's three reasons why the church split. But the biggest one, I believe, is was education. After World, see, before, before and during during World War Two. We didn't have very many people in the church who, who had higher education, and we certainly didn't have people who had like graduate degrees in areas that are sensitive to the church, like history, uh, sociology, psychology, uh, you know, biblical criticism, uh, and so forth. And so when people like Bob Flanders wrote his book on Nauvoo, Alma Blair came, uh, and Paul Edwards came to Graceland, and then I came to Graceland, and people with graduate degrees, like in my case in seminary, and, and Paul in, in philosophy and history, and Alma in history, and church history especially, he specialized in, though, and, 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 and other people. Uh, the, the, the presence of People with graduate degrees in well in science, in science. Uh, Great Graceland had a couple of science professors that were there for a long time. Gustav Potts and and, and uh, Roy, Roy Mortimer, and uh, they taught they they taught they taught evolution way back in the 20s. You know when it was controversial still in the church and it still was in the 50s when I was at when I was at uh, Graceland. And one of their successors, uh, Dean Ferris, was my uh, introduction to biology teacher, and he was very sensitive about biology, but he clearly was very strong for evolution. And so, the, things like evolution, biblical criticism, and so forth, became big issues in the church after World War II. So that I think was a, was a really really big reason. But then, secondly. Uh, Chuck Neff, Apostle Chuck Neff, was assigned to be missionary in in uh, in, in, in Asia, and, and uh, he went to Korea and to Japan, and he discovered 
you know, our our church uh, missionary pamphlets and so forth, there's very little Christianity in them. It's all about Joseph Smith and, you know, the Golden Plates and the Book of Mormon and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, and, and so he, the other missionaries from other churches, he regarded them as his friends rather than enemies as we had before. He used to be, our main concern was to prove that these other churches were wrong and we were right. And now he saw these other churches as, as our allies, especially in all these non-Christian nations like Korea and Japan and so forth. And then he went into, then he went into Africa as well. Uh, and uh, so anyway, Chuck Neff uh, made us realize we need to rethink our whole approach to missionary work and so forth. And he, he, he basically took a basic Christian approach and saw the other Christians as allies. And so we, we moved in toward a more ecumenical view rather than we're the one true church. And so that was a big, a big issue. You know, the, the fundamentalists in the church wanted to stick to this, we're the one true church. And, and the Neffs and the Clifford Coles and other big guns in the church, <clears throat> in the 12, in the, in the presidency, uh, other than Wallace B. Smith, <laughs> I mean W. Wallace Smith. I'm sorry. Uh, these uh, people in the leadership of the church, some significant ones anyway, and, and ones who are becoming the real leaders of the church, were saying, you know, we've got to be ecumenical. We've got to recognize that we're just one Christian church. That hopefully we have things to to contribute to the Christian world, but we're not <laughs> we're not better than the others, you know. So that the ecumenism became a really big issue. We shouldn't be joining the World Council of Churches or National Council of Churches. They're a bunch of communists too, you know. <laughs> was one side, and I remember getting editor, edit, uh, letters to the editor in the Herald when I was the book, the uh, the letters editor of the Herald. Uh, I'd be reading these letters and people saying, you know, condemning the World Council of Churches, the National and World Council of Churches. One of them became a really good friend of mine in John Wimmer Historical Association. She'd been really strong against the National Council of Churches back in the 60s when she's writing in the Herald. Later on, became, she became very active in the John Wimmer Historical Association and she became an ecumenist and she was became a pastor of our church and she became active in the ecumenical movement in her part of, her part of Oklahoma. Uh, and so, uh, anyway, that that was a, that was a big issue too, and I think another another major issue was just that uh, after World War II, in that period of economic growth, the fifties became a great period as far as church growth because uh, you know people were making more money and more people were coming to church and so forth, but the but the the social economic uh, improvement of the church. Well, first of all, it led to all these people going to college, uh, but also, you know, when you are when when you're a person of, of of middle class status in the community, and you have status in the community, you're not really anxious to tell these other people that my church is the one true church of Jesus Christ on the face of the earth, and your and you guys are all going to hell, or you know, your your church is just not 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 up to snuff. 
And so I think, I think you know, if you're lower class, if, you, if, if you're a member of the society and you don't really have any status, to, to believe that you're a member of the one true church of Jesus Christ, man, and, and you're, a, you're, you're, a, you're, a, you're, a, you're a high priest, or have some, you know, Joseph Smith is great at giving some really fancy sounding titles to a lot of just ordinary men. Uh, but then I, then, I, then I got something to be bright, you know, to be feeling really good about. Uh, so I think those three reasons altogether led to the split in the church as far as some people were saying, you know, we are, we're just Christ, we are Christians. We're not Latter-day Saints. And so when, when uh, in 1969, the guys, the guys in our church at St. Paul had been working with the St. Paul faculty. Let's have some kind of, let's have some kind of uh, gathering, some kind of working together on some things. And so one thing they came up with, they said, let's have some joint council seminars. Let's have the joint council. That's the big 18, the three, three presidency, the three bishops, and the 12 apostles. Let's have the, what I call the big 18. <laughs> Let's have the 18 guys meet with three professors. And they met for like, like four times for week long, like Monday through Friday, week long conversations about Christian theology and scripture and so forth and history. So anyway, when that, when that came to light, the fundamentalists in the churches in the churches were saying, "Hey, we don't we don't need to be talking to these Methodist theologians. What do they know? Doctrine and Covenants section forty three says uh, you are not to be taught by others, but you are to do the teaching. These other churches have nothing to teach it to you. Well, that's one that's that's the, that's their that's their side of the story. But on the other hand." So these church leaders are saying, no, they've got a lot to teach to us. And in these sessions, Paul, Paul Jones, the, the professor who ended up with a long-time relationship with, with our church, I mean, he, he really followed what was going on and wrote a couple of articles in Whitmer and so forth. Paul Jones said, said to himself, we've got to decide here early on whether or not this RLDS Church is really a Christian church. And so he, he pinpointed W. Wallace Smith, the president of the church, who knew less than most of any of the other guys. But he said, now, if, if, in, if in our study together, if we came to, to find out that there's a conflict between what Jesus was saying and what Joseph was saying, which way would you go? And Paul Jones said, there was silence and everybody was thinking everything everything depends on what Wallace says. <laughs> and Wallace is the guy that they had the least confidence in, probably, for many of them. And so Wallace, he said Wallace took a deep breath, and he said, well, we'd have to go with Jesus. And so Paul Jones said, from then on, <laughs> we, we, we were comfortable, and we knew that we could just continue the discussion and and uh, this this group is a Christian group, and it's not a it's not a cult, <laughs> and so that, that that I think was a very important discovery on the part of the people listening to Jones and, and Wallace in that discussion. So anyway, that's that's uh, that, that's a big part of it. 
I'm trying to think of anything else that I ought to say as far as my involvement, but uh, basically I, I, I wrote more, far more book reviews in John Wimber than anybody else did. I wrote quite a few articles, but I also wrote a decent amount in dialogue and in Journal of Mormon History and in uh, uh, Sunstone. And, uh, and, and when, when, when W. Wallace retired, he was the first, to his, his credit, he was the first president who retired. He recognized, I'm about, I'm, he was like in his late 70s. And he was already, you know, <laughs> he had long, long ago been pretty much out of it. <clears throat> and uh, so he realized I should, I should retire. And, he, and his son, who was a medical doctor, an ophthalmologist, Wally B. Smith, he decided he, he agreed to take it. But he said, I'm sure, I'm sure Wally B. Told, told his dad, I need to prepare. You know, I, I spent a lot of time preparing to be a medical doctor. I can't just walk in on day one not knowing very much about church history and theology and stuff. And so they agreed he'd take two years as president, uh, president designate, and he'd become president two years from now. So he spent those two years studying. He took a trip to Africa to be, to be acquainted with one of our most successful missions, so forth. Uh, but he, but he also took he also had individual, individual, one-on-one uh, -on -one seminars with Paul Jones and, and three or four of the guys at St. Paul. One one one. one uh, biblical professor and main other theologians and historians and so forth, and so he he really changed. Wally Wally was a fairly orthodox RLDS guy before he before he had his training, <laughs> and a lot of that training came from St. Paul guys, which again another thing that really irritated the the, the orthodox saints. And I guess uh, if it's all right for me to brag a little bit. Wally at one point said, well, there's four, there were four uh, people whose writings really impressed me. And one was Jim Lancaster, my brother-in-law's brother, who wrote that article on the method of translation of the Book of Mormon. And another one, another one was a, a couple of, a married couple who wrote an article in the Herald on uh, early, early Christian communitarianism in, in the I mean, early early Latter-day, early Mormon communitarianism in the 1830s in, in Missouri. But then another one was me. And that was, I'm pretty sure, from things I heard, some, some, some uh, contact I had with Wallace, that he was talking about my article on the Book of Mormon in Sunstone, and maybe another article in, the, in Sunstone on honesty, on, on the importance of honesty and what we talk about in the church and stuff. And then there was some fourth person he mentioned, as a person, and I can't remember who that was. But anyway, somehow I I, uh, I, I made a, a little bit of a dent in Wallace's head, <laughs> and so did these other people, but not, not just the four that he mentioned, but all kinds of other things he, he read made a big difference in him. So that led to his first big controversy, I guess was polygamy. So Wallace, uh, again, medical doctor, and so the question came, uh, uh, President, I mean, not President, Apostle Bill Higdon, uh, 
had been at the at the Mormon history meeting in in Kirtland, and I'd been there and heard, and heard this speech by uh, oh the guy from uh, from uh, <clears throat> the guy from Atlanta, Larry Foster, who wrote the book on Mormonism and two other one Oneida community and I can't remember the third community and, and their marital views three quite different marital views polygamy and 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 no sex at all and I can't remember the third one but anyway uh, Higdon was really impressed by Larry's uh, paper because uh, it seemed pretty clear that Joseph that Larry thought Joseph was a polygamist and so Bill, Bill Higdon was back, gets back home and tells Wallace B. Smith, who now is president-designate, he's, he's not yet the prophet, he can't have any revelations yet. <laughs> and so uh, he, uh, he tells, he, he says, you know, Wally, I think we probably ought to, we ought to really take another good look at polygamy, another hard look at polygamy, because we might be, you know, we might be wrong on that. So Wallace asked Dick Howard, the church historian, to do a paper on polygamy. Well, Dick, it was, Dick had all kinds of other things on his plate at the time, so it was a couple of years before he got it done, but he finally submitted his paper. And uh, <clears throat> there was a church history commission of about 20 people that I was on, and, and the church history commission met with him and uh, evaluated his paper. Uh, on a Sunday afternoon at Graceland. And uh, we were telling him, it's pretty good, but uh, it's, too it's too timid. And for example, you don't, even, you don't even mention any Mormon sources, and there's all kinds of Mormon sources about polygamy. But Dick, of course, has said, well, you know, church people are gonna say poo-poo, are gonna poo-poo that, we don't, we don't really believe in this, this Mormon nonsense. And so, so on, on Sunday, he was being told it was too tame. On Monday, he met with the Joint Council, and they thought the article was way too, <laughs> way too radical. <laughs> and so uh, the First Presidency toned it down a bit. Grant McMurray, who was secretary of the First Presidency at the time, told me a few years later when I interviewed him that... Uh, uh, the article was sanitized. Of course, Grant had been Dick Howard's assistant before he became church secretary. Uh, Grant told me, he said, uh, the article was sanitized a great deal, mainly by Alan Tyree, one of the two counselors to the presidency. And Alan Tyree was a very arrogant guy who, who, who thought he knew better, knew more than anybody else. But anyway, it was sanitized a lot. And But then... Uh, Wally B. Smith said, "Let's publish it, but let's don't publish it in a, in a uh, in an official place like the Saints Herald. Uh, maybe the John Wimmer Journal would publish it." <laughs> so Claire Blahos was editor of the journal at that, that time. They called Claire, and Claire said, "Sure, we'll print it." And so the deal was made; it would be printed in the well. He he would give the paper at the John Wimmer meeting in in eighty three. And the very same day, we would release that issue of the journal that would have its paper in it. And so, uh, but I remember reading the paper and I thought, this isn't the paper I read earlier. <laughs> earlier. It was very, very disappointing to me. But anyway, 
Richard, uh, Richard Price, who, as I said, became a great friend of mine. Richard Price was really offended. For Richard, Joseph Smith was not a polygamist. It was probably his, one of his central ideas, central points. He was writing about that all the time in his, his own magazine. Virtually every issue of his magazine, the last article would be another, another section of Joseph Smith fought polygamy. <laughs> but anyway, um, so Richard Price published a full-page ad in the last in, in the back page of the Saturday uh, Independence Examiner, the local newspaper. And it was published, I believe, right before World Conference. But at any rate, uh, his, his criticism uh, was widely read, and so it really, it really alerted the people in the church to the fact that, that uh, the church historian himself seems to be believing in play. That, that's the way to put it. He seems to be believing <laughs> that Joseph was a polygamist. But it, uh, it, it, it opened a lot of people's eyes anyway. Dick, Dick Howard, though, felt really, really betrayed by the presidency because when the criticisms came in, the presidency said, oh, that's just Dick Howard's article. He, he's the church historian. He's, he's given it his best, best, best thinking. And, and they never let on that they're the ones that assigned Dick Howard to write it. They edited the thing, decided where it would be published. That was all the first presidency, but none of that's ever mentioned. It's just something Dick Howard wrote. And, and so Dick felt like he was thinking of the, thinking of the Watergate experience. Uh, he felt like he was being left, left hanging, slowly twisting in the wind. <laughs> but uh, I, I guess I'd, my, if I ever talked to Dick about it, I, I would have said, well, Dick, yeah, they're, they're, they're hiding from it, but they're still supporting you. I mean, you know, you're, they, they still appreciate what you did. <laughs> they just, they're just too, too afraid to talk about it publicly, what they did to in the whole process. And Paul Edwards, who's in on some of these meetings too, because he was president of the Temple School, Paul says that Bill Higdon finally was opposed to publishing it. <laughs> Bill Higdon, the apostle, who started the whole thing by telling Wally, we ought to, we ought to take a hard look at polygamy. But then Wallace, I mean, Bill Higdon finally decided, no, nah, let's, don't, let's don't publish this. But Wally decided it, it really needed to be published. We really need to get this out. So to Wally's credit, it needs to be needs to be, it needs to get out. At least it began the discussion of polygamy in a serious way because we, the church people, ten years earlier just dismissed Bob Flanner's book on on Nauvoo. Bob Flanner has been an elder in the church uh, in 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 Lamoni, teaching history of Graceland. He had a brief period as a missionary in the church before he became an academic. Uh, and but 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 people in the church just just uh, dismissed that. Uh, my my mother said, you know, she she had known Bob Flanders before when he was a missionary, but now she says she wouldn't want to have anything to do with him. He's just terrible. <laughs> and because her father spoke directly to Joseph Smith the third, and Joseph Smith the third assured my grandfather that his father, Joseph Jr., was not a polygamist. So that was good enough for my mother. And so Bob Flanders is crazy. Uh, but now Dick Howard, the church historian, uh, is 
kind of had, it kind of, it kind of by accident, kind of by accident fell into, into the church uh, <laughs> situation. And so now I think Flan, I think Bob, I think Dick Howard is the one that finally made church members, many of them, the progressive church members who ended up sticking with the world church, uh, made them open, open their mind that, yeah, maybe, maybe Joseph was a polygamist. And I think before long, that's fairly, fairly widely believed. I don't know if it would be a majority, but it, but it certainly increased the openness to many church members to polygamy. The fact that Joseph was eh, probably a polygamist. <laughs> and then guys like Alma, Alma Blair followed up with another article, uh, and that that was very helpful too. <clears throat> so, so polygamy was a big issue just before women came to the... See, that, that's... Dick Howard's article was in September of 93. Wally's revelation on women was April of 94, six months later or so. And, and uh, if, if, if the women's issue hadn't just emerged as the big issue, polygamy might have been the big issue that would have separated, that would have divided the church. But the people kind of forgot about the polygamy issue because now we're about to ordain women, <laughs> you know. I mean, we weren't going to be baptizing polygamists even if we decided that Joseph was a polygamist. But ordaining women, now we have to have meetings in which we're going to have to decide whether or not to approve a recommendation for the ordination of Sister, Sister Jones to be a, an elder or a priest or whatever. And uh, so it's going to require a political decision on every single one. And so in the four most conservative state stakes right in the central area. Most of, well, I think all women first, first uh, recommended for ordination were voted down. But in each case, they came back later <laughs> uh, and, and got, them, got them approved. Most all of them got approved eventually. So anyway, women became the big issue. But they did a terrible job administering the situation. That the leadership did. They, they they took the position. I mean, this would be the presidency now. Uh, see, I think Wally B. had the best best mind of any of the any of the Smith boys that that led the reorganization, and he his study and everything, careful research and everything led him to very progressive ideas, which which I think were wonderful, for the most part. But he, his two counselors were two very, very were two of the worst counselors in the first presidency in my experience going back to 1960 when I came to Harold House. We had really nice guys as counselors to the president in those days, but now we had one power hungry, very power hungry guy, and then we had Alan Tyree, who was just the most arrogant person I've ever known in my life. Period. So, uh, and, then, and then some of the guys, so, so those would be the two guys who'd be, for the most part, working with the state presidents and the other guys that are dealing with the fight over women in, or, in ordination. And they just treated it like, uh, you need to accept this new revelation or get out of here. And it was kind of the attitude they took. And they just started silencing 
silencing, meaning your priesthood's taken away from you. They started silencing men. Hundreds of men were silenced. Instead of saying, thinking, this is the way I thought ahead of time that they would be doing it, you'll take a pastoral approach. You'll say to these guys, well, give us some time. You know, uh, don't leave, you know, we don't want you to leave the church. Stick, stay with us. And uh, you're still in the priesthood and you're still a good member of the church. You're still welcome. And, you know, give it time and see if uh, five or ten years from now you still, you still feel the way you do. Uh, but instead, a lot of them were just silenced right away. And once you silence a guy from his priesthood, he'll never be back in the church again. He's not going to say, you know, six months later, oh, I repent, I'd like to come back. That almost, that almost never happened. <clears throat> it sometimes did, but it almost never did. When we get to the when we get to the ordination of gays, they handled it so much better, so much better than they did on the women. They learned, and it was practically a whole new administration of the church had come to being by that time. And it was Grant McMurray. It was the non Smiths, Grant McMurray and Steve Vesey, and then the, the apostles that really made that that all possible. They, they handled it very carefully and took their time, which, which made some of us concerned. It took, took so much time, but nevertheless, they took their time and we finally got gays ordained on the same basis as anybody else would be if the leadership thought they were, you know, had the qualifications that were required for being in the priesthood and so forth. But anyway, that's, I've talked too long. <laughs> Need to let you ask some questions. <laughs> You've actually been going along with some of the questions I was going to ask you already. Okay. So that's that's great. You've given some uh, really good overview of the reasons, some of the reasons why the, the fundamentalist um, schisms occurred. Can you maybe outline some of the uh, the early beginnings of the uh, the schism? There really wasn't serious. There were there were some minor schisms prior to women's ordination in 1984, that, prior to that revelation. The ordinations didn't happen until November of 85. But, but anyway, there were some, there were a few, but very few, because the, the leaders, I mean, the, 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 the fundamentalists kept thinking, well, in fact, early on they kept thinking, W. Wallace Smith, he, he probably doesn't realize what these young Turks uh, through the Department of Religious Education and at Harold House and up at Graceland. Uh, he probably doesn't really realize that these, like, like these position papers they've written at the Religious Education Department, they, he probably doesn't realize that this is a serious matter. But he'll, he'll, he'll soon realize it, and when he realizes that, then he'll take care of it. Well, W. Wallace Smith never read the position papers, the papers that were... <laughs> very controversial in the church and causing all kinds of fuss and every, you know, everybody was either complaining about, him, about them or supporting them and, and in his oral history Wallace B I'm sorry, W. Wallace Smith admits he never read them there's lots of things he never read <laughs> so one time uh, when Cooey had replaced it F. Henry Edwards in the, in, in the presidency, and it was Draper and Cooey as his two counselors. One time he went into Draper's office and said, 
Morris, I'm sure thankful for you and Duane. If it wasn't for you and Duane, I don't know what I'd do. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so, so uh, there was a split out in Vancouver, Washington by 1970. Uh, about the same time there was a split up in Canada, uh, on Sound Canada, by a, a crazy guy and his crazy, even crazier son, which, all, which, which ended up as a real cult. It's one of three cults that I that I assigned. And I've only got the the real skinny on on that on that group recently, but I mean I'm, I mean how far they went. In my earlier version of my, my book, it's just one. It's just an, an early schism in 1970. Al Pelletier, a very gung ho, 70, had did a, done a series of, of sermons up in Owen Sound, Ontario and converted Stan King and uh, but, but within a decade Stan King had left the church and and, and just he, he became a polygamist and he became I, I get, get to that later I suppose but anyway so there's just a few like that and then after sex because everybody kept thinking we'll, we'll get the, we'll get this turned around they didn't realize they didn't really have a chance but they thought they did so finally uh, after section on the section of women's priest and the priesthood, section 156 came down in 1984. Again, most of them thought, well, we'll just come to the conference, the next conference in 1986, and we'll have a motion to rescind section 156, and they'll take care of it, and <laughs> we'll get rid of it. And so they organized, and they got, there, there was about three or four stakes, again, the same stakes they were, that turned down women later. Three or four stakes in the independence area had a lot of fundamentalists come, elected as delegates, and they came, and they opposed all kinds of things. But anyway, on the motion to rescind Section 156, Wallace B. Smith, the medical doctor, now president, he ruled it out of order. I was sitting up in the balcony with Ron Romig and, and, a, and a lawyer from New York. We were sitting up there watching how things were going. But anyway, uh, he ruled it out of order on the basis that only, since, since only the prophet can bring a revelation, only the prophet can take action to remove the revelation. I, I give great credit to Dick Howard. I think it's in in his volume two of his church history, but it might have been something else he wrote. But I remember very clearly Dick Howard saying that was a big mistake because it, it, it shuts off the possibility in the future of the church ever, ever correcting a mistake. And I think Wallace didn't realize it was gonna pass easily, easily anyway. I mean, uh, after the, the anyway the the the, uh, the motion to deny the rule out of order passed by about an 89 percent vote, and uh, I was sitting up in that balcony thinking, why are you doing this? You you can easily pass it anyway, and why are you, as Dick Howard said later, why are you shutting off the possibility of correcting a mistake? The guy that has the revelation is probably going to be the last guy to ever admit that it was a mistake. I mean, it's just dumb. 
but anyway, that's, 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 I think, the biggest mistake Wally B. ever made. So, so, so it's after section, it's after the 1986 uh, motion to deny even the chance to debate and vote on whether or not to rescind section 156. That's when, that, that's when the fundamentalists say, okay, we've got, to, we've got to start our own groups. And Richard Price, the great, I think the, the great thinker as to where, where we ought to go, Richard Price articulated the, the independent restoration branch movement. We've got to be independent branches, totally independent from the RLDS Church. We've got to uh, articulate the restoration tradition, and we got to be—we're just a branch. We're not a new general. We're not, we're not a new world church. We're not a new general church. We're just a local branch. So independent restoration branches. Because Richard was rightly afraid that we're going to have all kinds of men—probably men. I think most, most all of them were men. Uh, they all were men that I know of. Are going to be thinking, golly me. Golly, be somebody needs to set the church right. I think I'm the one to call to do it. <laughs> and uh, Richard was very naturally worried about that. He says we, 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 we can't. How do you put it? Uh, we can't run before the Lord. We've got to wait until we actually have a new president of the church, and then we can call higher officers like apostles and bishops and stuff like that. But for now, independent restoration branches, just a local branch. The only priesthood we can call are Aaronic priesthood, deacon, teacher, priest, and elder. Those are local. Those are local priesthood. But the other higher priesthood, they are called by higher authority and not by the local pastors and stuff like that. And so we just got to be independent restoration branches. I think that was brilliant in the short run. Uh, but the short run is gone by now. <laughs> uh, but in the short run, that was really good because I think that reduced the number of self self proclaimed prophets. We we, have, we still had ten or twelve of them, but I think we could have had fifty of them. <laughs> you know, if uh, a good, good example of that is well, I don't know an example of it. A husband and wife who got involved in the Lundgren cult, the murderous cult in Ohio. They were from down in Branson, Missouri, and uh, funny thing about it is they were both descended from Joseph Luff, who was a really big hero in the church back around 1900. They're both related, but they're still like only second, second cousins or something. They were they were legally married. Ron was a really great guy. He's doing 170 years in prison right now, but other than that, he's really a great guy. <laughs> She, he, 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 but he's been a very, you know, he's been a very impressive guy, in many ways, from a religious perspective. So Susan, his wife, says, "Ron, I think you're the one called by God to set this the church in order." It's actually, it's too bad he, he didn't do that, because <laughs> he wouldn't have got involved with Jeff Lundgren. But anyway, uh, he, said, he said he was humble enough to say, "No, it's, it's not me." And they finally settled on Jeff Lundgren, the, the murderer. But anyway, I think there's just too many people like Gene Walton and, and others who thought they're, they are called to set the church in order. And so, uh, so that's what happened. It was the independent restoration branches were the dominant, and they still are really the dominant 
groups within that first two years or so after after Wallace denied the right to debate rescinding the revelation, within the next couple of years, about 200 local local congregations or, or groups, sometimes they're just a group because they didn't have enough priesthood to get a branch going, but they'd have a study group or get together for a study and worship, uh, but not really be, in our, be a congregation or a branch, I guess they call them a branch. So that was it for quite a while. But then, uh, oh, after about 10 or 15 years had gone by, well, no, let's, let's go, go back. In, 19, in 1990, they organized the, uh, some, some, a few people organized the Restoration Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That was pop, basically the 70, a bunch of 70s, not, not a big bunch of them, but you know, half a dozen 70s. And then they ordained about eight more 70s. Uh, they organized. That, that came out of the Page and Abramson groups, right? Yeah, that's the Page Abramson group, yeah. Yeah, Norman Page was the real brains behind, or at least the real leader of this group. But he wasn't a direct descendant of Joseph Smith. Uh, and so they were, they were trying to figure out who, who to get. Well, Marcus Juby from Oklahoma who'd moved to, moved to the Independence area, Marcus Juby had significant Native American uh, blood in him. And somehow, out of, I read this in the Book of Mormon, but it doesn't really make any sense. But somehow, uh, that's an acceptable alternative to a Smith. And so they, so they made Marcus Juby the president of the church. Uh, well, he was terrible. I mean, uh, people just kept leaving the church. People that were close to him usually left the church pretty soon. Like one time he had two members of the first presidency. They'd only been in the presidency for a year or two, and they both just left the church. That group started with a thousand people, and they kept declining as they, as they kept leaving. Roger Lanius's father was part of that group, uh, Doyle Lanius. But anyway, that, that group just kind of fell apart. Well, meanwhile, David Bowerman came out of the, uh, he'd been a church appointee, and he'd been the, the, the president of four successive RLDS stakes, ending up in Kansas City stake. But meanwhile, he, he was conservative. He voted against the 1984 motion on women in the priesthood. And here he is, the president of maybe the most conservative stake in the church. And so Paul Edwards, though, was pastor uh, of the most liberal congregation, maybe in, in the whole central area, Walnut, Walnut Gardens in, in Independence. Paul recommended a woman, Goodyear, Mrs. Goodyear, to be ordained. And, Dave, Dave, and Paul and Bowerman were in real good, real good friends, and they were real good, real good personal basis. And David Bowerman just says, Paul, if I bring that motion to the World Conference, to our state conference, they'll just be, they'll just be a revolution. It'll, it'll never pass. And he was, he was right. It wouldn't have passed. So Paul dropped it. But anyway, uh, so there's all, all, all these stakes had, had uh, all these four stakes had turned down all, virtually all the women. But anyway, Bowerman then said, he talked to the, he talked to the presidency and he said, I, I'm a poor fit for Blue Valley Stake because 
we're really at odds with what the church is doing. Why don't you give me another assignment that's that's less pro- problematic? And so they just moved him to, in, to headquarters to be part of the uh, kind of the real kind of the real estate handle the real estate ownings of the church. With two or three people involved in that, and so he did that for the last six, six years or so. And he says, I, I won't be in, I won't be involved I won't involve myself with the restoration branches as long as I am getting as long as I'm working for you guys for the RLDS church. But in 1991, he retired from the church, had uh, church from the church uh, his, his church uh, appointment, and immediately got involved in the in the restoration branches. And so he led he he led the battle to get uh, things more organized, and he really wanted to establish. A new church, you know, go way beyond Richard Price's ideas, and, and, and establish a new church with, with with the president and everything. And so I, I became I hadn't known Bowerman before, but I got to be a real good friend of his because he would come to Independence. I mean, I would come to Independence to do research at the temple, and across the street was the was the headquarters of the newly established remnant, the Remnant Church. And uh, at least that's what was becoming the remnant church. It hadn't been established yet, but he was leading the way to establishing that. And so we would, so I would give him a call, and we would meet for for lunch. We'd always have, we'd always go to Subway. There's two Subways in Independence, and we go to one or the other. And so one time I pick him up, and we're driving toward the Subway down by Christman High School, and he said, "Do you mind if we go by uh, City Hall or City City?" city headquarters and pick up uh, a guy named uh, Fred Larson who, who, who he, he was a scientist who worked on the scientific uh, you know on the criminal cases he works on the scientific evidence you know but anyway uh, he says and I, and I right away he said you mind if you pick him up I said sure <laughs> I knew exactly what what that meant because he, he I knew he was looking for a direct descendant of Joseph Smith he tried a Joseph F Smith down in Missouri who was who was with the Hedrickites, but he he wouldn't work, and that that didn't work out. I heard he had at least two meetings up in up in up in one in Lamoni and one in Independence. I went to the one in Lamoni. No, he, he was such a Hedrickite, he would never fit. So now now Bowerman is looking for somebody else. Here's Fred Larson, who's a direct descendant of Joseph Smith through his mother. His mother was Fred M's daughter, and so right away. Because Paul Edwards was a cousin and a close friend, Paul had told me about Larson. Larson had big ambitions church-wise back in the days when we were still at RLDS Church. Uh, he he had told Paul, well, when, when Wally becomes president, he'll name you and me to be counselors to the church. And I told Paul, Paul's telling me this after after World Conference, and, he, and I said, sure, Wally be a medical doctor. Uh, is going to have a first presidency made up of three cousins, <laughs> three first cousins, <laughs> all from the Independence area. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense for a world church, you know. <laughs> anyway, uh, so that didn't happen, of course. So now I'm thinking, okay, he's he's got he's got Larson lined up. I mean, he, he's thinking of him to be the next president. So he had a he had a prayer circle going. He got Larson involved in the prayer circle. And pretty soon they organized by about two, by by year. It was the year 2000. They organized the the Remnant Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. 
So the remnant church has been the most successful church. They, they, they're about 3,000 members, but there's probably still 15 or 20,000 people that go to restoration branches. Although they have split into two, a lot of splitting goes on among the splinters. Some of them finally decided by about 2005 that we really need to go beyond Richard Price's independent restoration branches strategy. We need to organize uh, districts and call higher priesthood members. They haven't talked about a president, but they've talked about, you know, 70s and, and evangelists and so forth. I don't believe they've gotten into ordaining apostles yet or, or, or a president. So they, the, the independent restoration branches have split in that regard in 2005. But, but the remnant church was still growing, st- slow but steady. They started, whereas the restoration church started at 1,000, and went down to 100. Uh, these guys started 1,000, and they gradually moved up to around, around 3,000 at least today. But, and, seemed, and, and Fred Larson had three sons, so that he seemed like a good, a good call, because a prophet with three sons, we can't have women, of course, uh, but a prophet with three sons, that, that gives us good op- options. But when he, 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 he was the president for about 15 years, in about, in about, well, not quite 15 years. Uh, he died about a couple of years ago, about, about 2022, 2021, so when, well, that's, that's 20 years, yeah, since, since 2000. So, he, so he's, he's, he was prophet for a little over, over, over 20 years. He had, he had revelations and they added them to the scriptures. And so the only, the last decent revelation of the community of Christ was section 144. So you just go check section 145, 40, 40, 46, 47, 48. So that's what several of these groups have done. But any, as including the restoration branch. But then when Fred, died, and Fred, Fred came to some Whitmer meetings, he went out west to some MHA meetings and so forth. And he was really well liked by MHA people and, 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 w, and John Whitmer people and so forth. But anyway, he died, but none of his three Boys were active in the church, and that and that just illustrates what if he had what if the three boys had been active, but they were just namby pamby, you know, kids that were maybe only just priests or elders, but only semi-active. Or are you going to call one of them to be president of the church? I mean, this idea of that's that's my next paper, Whitmer. The both churches made terrible decisions way back. In early days, to make the first, the first succession, Brigham and Joseph, those both made sense. But after that, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Both churches been left, were left in a really terrible situation. You ended up with W. Wallace Smith, who thought Martin Luther King was a communist, uh, and so forth. So anyway, Jim uh, Larson dies. He has no sons that are interested that are involved. And so he only had one member of the first presidency, but for some reason that wasn't the person that, that was wanted by a lot of the church, I guess, a guy named Von Cannon. So Von Cannon kind of assumed he would get the leadership, but instead they went to some guy named Patience, last name of Patience, a cousin of his who lives here in Lamoni, and I know in Lamoni. So, they, 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 so they're at the remnant church has a division, and, I, and the one thing I don't know yet is how serious the division was. 
von Cannon and some of his relatives and some other people leave the church because Ben Cannon should have been the next president, I guess. And, and so now they're in the church that has had a division. I don't know how serious it is. I have a feeling that it's a fairly small segment of that 3,000 that have left, but I don't know. I, I, that's that's a, an issue I, I'd like to get a hold of. Uh, so, but, but still, the remnant churches, as far as an actual church, that's the only actual church that's had any success. But you do have these 200 or so independent restoration branches that exist all over the place. The restoration churches are doing well in the independence area, in the central area, because for one thing, independence is a pretty conservative town. I lived there for six years and couldn't stand the town. <laughs> With my Michigan and pro-civil rights background, there was still an awful lot of segregation and independence and so forth. But anyway, so independence, independence had, before this happened, had attracted more people, more conservative people from around the church to come, came, come there to, to build Zion. And then when the split came, a lot of people in these restoration branches around the church have, have come into independence. And so on a typical Sunday, this was true years ago, on a typical Sunday, there's more people in restoration branches in independence than there are in RLDS congregations in independence. But I think these other restoration branches, many of them are, are, are really suffering because they've, they've lost a lot of membership. And, and again, much like the RLDS church, a lot of the younger generation doesn't, like, like with Fred Larson, a lot of the younger generation doesn't come along. And so I think the restoration branches are becoming more and more churches that will be either in independence or in a few locations around around the country. I, I don't really deal much with with outside the, the United States because it's especially in the in the non in, in the Western world it's it's so different. Uh, I don't I don't claim to have <laughs> expertise on where things stand there. Uh, anyway, uh, so now, today, the Remnant Church is the largest r real church with a prophet, but uh, there's still a bunch of independent restoration branches, some of which have formed districts and been calling. See, they were running out of, they were running out of evangelists, they were running out of uh, 70s, so they really needed, especially those. And so there's, I think there's been a lot of, I know there's been quite a few new ordinations among those groups, but then there's some people that still still stick with Richard Price's original idea, just independent restoration branches. We don't call anybody above elder, deacon, or priest. Actually, I think that's good enough anyway. <laughs> who, who needs all those others? <laughs> who needs all those? I mean, Joseph Smith made up all kinds of priesthood offices which aren't in the Bible. <laughs> so I know that you've been working on a book about this subject. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about um, how that's coming along. And you said you're about to wrap it up. Well, I think, uh, well, uh, I have a woman helping on this. She, she volunteered because she knew, uh, see, I, I got Parkinson's about four years ago. And I had a bad accident also. So for a while, I didn't do much of anything. And so, but, but more recently, I'm deciding I'm trying to get this thing done. And so she called me one day and said, well, I'd be happy to help you with it. And so she's been very helpful because I can't drive. 
so I so but she's gone down to Independence a couple of times to look at sources that they have down there that I that I don't have access to up here. We 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 both went through all thirteen chapters once, and now we're going through all thirteen chapters, which are now I think going to be I think are going to be fourteen chapters, but uh, but now we're going through all the chapters one more time, and then we were hoping to submit the submit the book. I had promised signature books years ago because I was very close friends with the two with a, with a gay couple that used to run signature books. And, but anyway, I recommitted myself to them to them because they they retired. But the woman uh, that's now the executive leader of whatever they call it of signature books, they're probably they're putting out some really good stuff. And uh, I, I bought a couple volumes from them at the Whitmer meeting in Texas four four months ago, whenever that was. So I just told her, I'll, 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 I'll recommit to signature for this book, and I'll just try to make sure we have good, make, make good effort to get the book known in, in RLDS, in, in, well, Community of Christ, as we call ourselves now. Try to make sure we, we get, we get the, the book well advertised in Community of Christ sources. And if so, then that would be perfect. You know, signature will give us a nice LDS out, LDS uh, connections, and then if we make sure we get some adequate our community of Christ connections, maybe we can get good uh, good sales on the book. So talking just the other day on the phone, Cynthia and I uh, set a goal of let's try to get the book finished this year. I mean, this by, by by December, and I think that's a realistic yeah. goal. But then we'll be then we'll be off signature books and who knows how long it will be before they get it out, you know. So I'm hoping that in two years it'll be out. <laughs> well, you certainly have a, a lot of us out here looking forward to sit, to reading it. Any any parting thoughts uh, that you want to share with our listeners before we close? Uh, I, I just think uh, there's one idea that's that's really hit my mind quite a bit lately that that I think is is key. I, I, it came out of something I read of Paul Tillich's, but the basic idea is that all theologi- all all religious affirmations or theological formulations or whatever, all are fallible and subject to careful consideration, careful careful consideration, and so I think that's the essence of the two groups. One thing that's been occurring to me a lot lately is that. Uh, you know, we, in the RLDS Church, and I assume in the LDS Church, we focus very hard on the idea that God is unchanging. Well, the problem with that is it's our understanding of God we're talking about. That's all we have is an understanding of God, and our understandings of God are, 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 are fallible. And, and therefore, see, if you look back at the issue, you read, go back, one time I went back and read through I mean, at least I went through the first 40 years of the Saints Herald, and the world that they lived in was so different than the world we're in now. I think Mark Shear once once had an article in the Whitmer Journal and said, entitled something like, "Answering Questions No Longer Asked." <laughs> and so, you know, a lot of the stuff that we were in the Restoration branches, a lot of the stuff in the earliest Church when I was growing up, like things like, you know, what what church is the church that really is the New Testament church. And we put together all those crazy 
references from the Bible, most of which don't make any sense. And, oh, there's the true church. <laughs> well, I don't know if that was a big issue. You know, if, if, if organization of the church is, was a big issue back in Joseph Smith's time or not, it certainly isn't a big issue in the 20th and 21st century. And so uh, all religious affirmations need to be subject to careful examination. An article I wrote in the John Wimmer Journal very recently was the, the role of reason in the transformation of the community of Christ. I mean, I mean for, uh, transformation of the RLDS Church to the community of Christ. And I gave 10 ideas that I was taught growing up that I used to think were true that are now based on reason. I don't believe them. And uh, uh, Tillich also said, I guess, that a, that a minister preaching, you need to take a look at the Bible, but then you would need to relate that to the current culture. Well, since the culture changes, we, we, we don't, the idea of an unchangeable God can really screw us up, you know, because we forget the fact that it's, it's not God that's unchangeable. I don't, I don't believe it, you know. It's we're, our understanding of God we think is unchangeable. And since we have an understanding of God, we think that's unchangeable. But that's our understanding. That's not, <laughs> and, and so, so I just think the difference between those who think yeah, there's this unchangeable gospel that Joseph Smith established, and and then uh, since since these since these liberals have been changing that un, that that unchangeable gospel, then they're heretics, and so I, I just think that's I see that intellectually as as part of the reason why we have the division in the church. You know, we, we, we couldn't continue with the old system where we assume that there's an unchangeable God and and uh, he's established the true church and we got to stay close to it. If you, if you have that, then that means any time you move away from any of those ideas, you're in, you're in apostasy. So to me, that's, that's a central problem. Well, Bill, thanks again uh, for joining us today. Uh, it's been a real honor and privilege to uh, spend some time with you and uh, and thank you to your lovely wife lois for her technical assistance yeah getting well, things set up today she's been terrific yeah. without her i don't know what i do we want to thank you for tuning into the whitmer cast john whitmer historical association is an educational nonprofit institution for more information visit www.jwha.info where you can meet our team and join the association, read past issues of the JWHA Journal, and get updates on upcoming conferences and events. Our theme music is I Love to Tell the Story, composed by Tom Moraine. This podcast is a production of John Whitmer Historical Association, all rights reserved.